you have a Bible, you can go to the book of Genesis, chapter 43. We're going to cover two chapters this morning, uh, Genesis 43 and Genesis 44. You can tell it's a large chunk of, of text. And so we will, we will not be reading every verse in chapters 43 and 44. I will summarize and try to, to read some of the highlights. Um, please notice. Not because I, I think that my summary is, is more inspired than God's Word, but just simply for the sake of what we're trying to accomplish this morning, that's how we will do it. I encourage you, if you haven't read 43 and 44, to go ahead and do that. But just know that's how we'll be covering it uh, this morning. According to the Catholic Church, St. Jude is the patron saint of lost causes. That's not why we named our son Jude. Um, but I don't really know why. But what I do know is that there's a St. Jude's Children's Hospital, and it is named for that purpose, because that hospital takes the hardest and the most hopeless of cases, people that supposedly can't be helped, and they seek to help them. They turn lost causes into lives that have been saved. And in different ways, as I look at uh, Joseph's brothers, I am tempted to think that they are a lost cause, that they have been hardened into hiding their sin for the past 20 plus years, and, and we might assume that they will always be the lying and selfish men that they proved themselves to be way back when and have continued to be in the following years. But as Joseph continues to test them, and as we see that this morning, they, they reveal that they are not lost causes, but rather they, they teach us this, that change is possible, even for dishonest, uncompassionate people like us. Change is possible. Change is possible even for dishonest, uncompassionate people like us. It's a good reminder, isn't it? That we can often look at ourselves, maybe not as often at ourselves, but we can often look at others and assume that there is no hope. We can look at family members and friends and co-workers and say they are a total lost cause. They've been that way for 20 years. They will never change. Or we may look deep into our own hearts and when we're honest with ourselves, we would proclaim, we would say, I will never change. I'm always going to struggle with this. This will always be a, a sin or an area of my life or an area of unbelief or an area of insecurity that will, that will be in my life. It might be like uh, Joseph's brothers. <coughs> And we look at people and we assume that we or they will always be dishonest and uncompassionate. That's just what they will be like for the rest of their lives. And I think these ten brothers in this chapter, hardened for 20 years, they speak boldly into our lives and into the different people that we look at and they say, change is possible, even for dishonest, uncompassionate people like you and like me. So last week, you remember, we went back to Canaan. We had been in Egypt primarily, and we went back to Canaan, and we traveled with Joseph's brothers to Egypt. We reunited with these ten guys. The last time that we saw them, you remember, they were conspiring to kill their brother. Reuben stepped in and helped spare Joseph's life, but then the fourth son, a guy named Judah, came up with the idea to sell Joseph into this caravan. So Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and the lie that, that Joseph was dead was told to Jacob in more or less words. And so now, more than 20 years have passed, maybe 22-ish years, and we've been with Joseph for those 20-some years, 
We've watched him be falsely accused. We've watched him be imprisoned. We've watched him be forsaken. And now he has been exalted to the second in command in Egypt. And as you, we look at, at Joseph's timeline, we, we have to remember that the timeline of these brothers is running parallel to that. These guys are still back in Canaan. Their lives are going forward as well. They are being married. They are having children. They are maturing and growing older. And yet all the while that this timeline of Joseph and the timeline of these brothers is going along, all through those years, they still hold and harbor this secret about what had happened to Joseph. Can you imagine what that would be like? They hold on to what they had done that fateful day in Dothan. We don't know much about what happened in those years for the brothers, but we do see one timeline. You remember that timeline back in chapter 38? The timeline of Judah. We get a picture of what happened in Judah's life. Judah, whose two sons were killed because of their evil actions, and they left Tamar, a widow. And remember we saw that Judah was courageously deceived by his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and through that he came in part to see his unrighteousness. My favorite part of that was that scene, you remember, where Tamar comes out, she holds before Judah his cord and his ring and his staff, and she says, do you recognize these things? And Judah, in those words of conviction, hears himself saying to his father, as he holds up Joseph's robe covered in in the, the blood of a goat, he says, do you recognize this, Dad? And Judah experienced in that moment conviction, gift of conviction. And from that, he was changed. We see him change at the end of chapter 38. I bring that up because Judah is going to play a key role in chapters 43 and 44. He takes the place of leadership among his brothers. Reuben has been trying to be the leader, right? So Reuben was the guy who said, let's not kill him. But then Judah stepped in and said, let's sell him. And everybody listened to Judah, they didn't listen to Reuben. Uh, You remember last week that Reuben was the guy who made this rash vow that he would protect Benjamin at the cost of his own son's lives. But on the other hand, Judah comes in and he proves that he is the humble, courageous, self-sacrificing leader that his family needed in this particular moment. So last week, the, the, as the brothers went to Egypt, there's this, there's this underlying question we're wondering, because we know where Joseph's at, right? We know he's in Egypt. The brothers have no clue. And so we're wondering, will they recognize him when they show up? We saw that they stood before him. He's the governor of all of Egypt, and they don't recognize him one bit. But he knows who they are. He recognizes their faces. He, he hears their voices, and he remembers who they are. But what he doesn't know is he doesn't know their hearts. So these tests are to figure out, have these guys changed? Are they the same ruthless men that threw me into the pit? Are they still dishonest? Are they still uncompassionate? Or has time and God's grace changed these guys? Are they different? And so to get the answer to those questions, he tests them. And in chapters 43 and 44, the test is going to continue. So in chapter 42, he says, you guys are spies. Basically, he says, you're dishonest. And the guys say, no, we're honest. And so he does a test. And the test is, I'm going to keep Simeon here, your brother. You guys go and get your younger brother that you told me about. Bring him here, and then I'll know that you guys are telling the truth, that you are honest men. And underlying that is this also this test, not just of their honesty, but of their compassion. Will they leave Simeon like they left him, or will they come back for him? Will they return for the brother in a way that they had not returned for him? We saw also that so Joseph sends them away on this test, and as he does it, he, he sort of you know, twists the knife a little bit and puts all their money back in that. 
in their sacks. So they get home and they, they open them up and all their money's restored and they're all afraid. And they tell Jacob, we have to take Benjamin with us. And Jacob says, no way. You're never taking Benjamin. So you show up in verse in chapter 43 and if we read at the beginning of verse 1, now the famine was severe in the land. The famine is still going on. And so having there's this, this test that's going to come for Jacob. He has lost his wife, Rachel. He's lost her son, Joseph. And now Jacob has invested his entire life in protecting Benjamin. For the past 20 years, Jacob has had one goal. Keep Benjamin alive. I've got to have Benjamin with me. And now, because the famine is so severe, Jacob is being forced into a situation where his love for his son, his desire to protect his son is coming right up against the starvation of his entire family. He has to make a decision. He tells his son to go back to Egypt and and get some more grain. And Judah says, there's no point in us going if we don't take Benjamin. The guy told us we have to have Benjamin. Jacob gets irrational in verse 6. He says, why did you have to tell him about this? And, and, And Judah says, listen, he asked us all these really specific questions. We didn't know he was going to tell us to bring our brother back. Pick up Judah's words in, in verse 8, and we'll read through verse 15. So Genesis 43, beginning in verse 8. And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. <clears throat> I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then the father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. May he send back your your other brother, and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them, and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. So where Reuben had failed to convince his father to let Benjamin go, Judah succeeds. Reuben offered his son's lives as collateral if Benjamin was lost. Judah offers his own life. He says he will bear the blame if Benjamin doesn't. So Jacob sees there's no choice, and he tells his sons, I want you to take three things. Take, 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 in verses 11 through 13. He says, first, take a present. Take some of the produce of the land to this mysterious governor. Uh, These would be things that represented the fruitfulness of the land of, of Canaan. Second, they're supposed to take double the money. Take the money that we found, and then also take additional money. And then finally, in verse 13, he says, Take also your brother. How difficult that would have been for Jacob to say that. Take your brother with him. Every time his sons leave and come back, they're missing the son, and now he's going to release Benjamin to them. And Jacob models for us what it's like to trust God by giving up something or more someone that we hold dear to us. The focus is on the brothers, though. All throughout this, God is still building faith in our friend Jacob, isn't he? 
his words in, in verse 14, he says he, he's holding on to, to hope. He hopes that, that by God's mercy, he will spare him this grief of losing Benjamin. But he also trusts God's sovereignty in the midst of it. His hope is that God's going to grant them mercy and send back Benjamin and send back their other brother, Simeon. And then he resolves that if he loses his children, such is the wisdom and the sovereignty of God. I think his words, they remind me of the words of Esther that happened later on as she intercedes for her people. Remember that? And it could cost her her life. And what does she say? I perish, I perish. In difficult situations, we, like Jacob, can hope for God's mercy while trusting God's sovereignty. Jacob teaches that. In, in difficult situations, we can hope for God's mercy while also trusting God's sovereignty. For Jacob, he's going to find that his faith in this moment of sending Benjamin is not only going to result in God's mercy in sending back Simeon and Benjamin, but it's also going to result in the resurrection, as it were, of Joseph. And not only that, but because Jacob has faith, he preserves the seed of promise. If Jacob refuses to let Benjamin go, they all die. And the seed dies when Judah dies, and all his sons die of starvation. But because, because Jacob had this faith, he preserves God's people. The ten brothers arrive in Egypt. Verse 16 says they're immediately summoned by Joseph to his house, which is strange to them, and they assume it has something to do with the money that was found in their sacks. When they arrive at the home, they think that it's going to be an ambush. They say in verse 18, they're being brought in so that he may assault us and fall on us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. Now, why the second richest man in Egypt would want their donkeys is beyond me. I don't know. They're very concerned about their donkeys. But they decide they're going to get ahead of this problem. They tell the steward of the house, of Joseph's house, how they have found their money in their sacks and how they have brought more money with them along with to, to buy more grain. And the steward says in verse 23, he says, Peace to you. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Now, I'm not completely sure what that steward is trying to convey to these guys, but what we what we see is that the brothers are passing the test of honesty. They brought the money back. They're saying, listen, we're honest guys. We didn't take this money. We're bringing the money back. They said in chapter 42, they said we're honest men. You remember we said, is that true? Uh, maybe they're honest men. But they are proving that they that they that what they do jives with what they say. They are honest guys now. They had lived a lie for so much of their lives. They've been convicted. And now they're showing to Joseph that they have learned the value and the necessity of honesty. They have changed. This is an encouragement that we do as God brings conviction into our lives. As he teaches us through the years. We, by his grace, can change. And maybe you've lived in the shadows for a large chunk of your life. Maybe there's some sort of dark part of your heart that you refuse to let the light of the truth shine into that place. But I just want to encourage you, no matter how long you've let the darkness remain, there is always hope for change. God, through conviction, calls us to repent. He calls us to, to step into the light, to know the forgiveness that would come if we would have faith in Christ. So they have this discussion with the steward, and then Simeon's brought out. Remember, he's been in, in jail away from them. What a reunion this would be to see their, their brother. 
then everyone prepares for a noon meeting with, with Joseph. They've learned that their presence in the house is not so that the Lord can ambush them and steal their donkeys, but rather so that he can share a meal with them. And they await his revival, and as they do that, they prepare, prepare the present that they had brought. You see that in verse 26, when uh, Joseph, uh, I'm sorry, and then you read in, in verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them, and bowed down to him to the ground. Now, in Northeast Ohio, they sell this stuff called trail bologna. You know trail bologna, Jordan C? It's Northeast Ohio. It's a regional thing. And for a Northeast Ohio boy like myself, you can't beat trail bologna and, and Swiss cheese. There's nothing like it. Um, Andrea's not a huge fan. She sort of tolerates it and smell. But for me, the, the smell and the taste, it reminds me of, of where I grew up. Now, you all know that, right? There's foods that are, that are regional. There's something that, that reminds you of home. It's, it's, you can only get it in that place, at that bakery, at that shop, wherever it might be. And, and, and that's something that just sort of recalls it. You, you remember home. You remember your youth. You remember all these things. And I think that as they bring this present from the land of Canaan, these are the things from Canaan, that it just immediately takes Joseph back to this youth. The, the produce of the land is now laid before him. And he had known this stuff as, as a boy. Maybe, you know, he loved pistachio. That's one of the last time I had a good pistachio. I wish I could have that. This didn't have that in Egypt. And it's all laid out before him. And then his brothers are all laid out, bowing down before him. And I just think he is so overwhelmed in this moment. All his senses are involved. His sight, his smell, even his taste is involved. And just welling up in him what this moment means and how God has brought his brothers to them. In verse 27, he, he speaks. Just a really poignant scene. 43:27. it says this. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? But God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. He sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. What a poignant scene. I mean, just imagine, whatever the food or the sight of his brother bowing down, whatever that served him, he, nothing had prepared him for what it would be like to see his brother after 20-some years. From what I can tell, Benjamin was, Benjamin was probably about 10 years old when Joseph was 17 and when he got to Lucasville. And so now, Benjamin is a 30-something-year-old man. He hasn't seen him for that long. He sees his brother for the first time. I'm sure that he probably hardly recognized him, and yet he knew exactly who he was in that moment. And he wanted nothing more probably to embrace his, his brother and to reveal himself. Instead, he goes off to this room and he, and he weeps. He composes himself. And he has the food served in three different groups because of custom. Joseph eats by himself, the brothers eat by themselves, and the Egyptians eat by themselves. And during the meal, two interesting things happen. One, the brothers are seated eldest to youngest. Reuben first, then Simeon, and on down the line. What's unique is they didn't choose to sit this way. This wasn't their assigned seating. I know at your house, I don't know. Well, I have a seat that I sit in every time. That's where I sit. Um, and, and, but they, they didn't do this on purpose, and we can tell because their response to it in verse 33 is, 
they, the men looked at one another in amazement. They're trying to figure out, why are we all, I mean, about ten of us were all put in the exact right order. There's, there's something fishy going on here. And the second shocking thing is that Benjamin gets five times as much food as everyone else. <laughs> so there he is at the end of the table, and they start bringing out the food. Everyone gets one chicken leg, and Benjamin gets five. Everyone gets one baked potato, and Benjamin gets five. Everyone gets, you know, maybe a little portion of a punset, and, and Benjamin gets a big old pile, you know. And so just imagine what that's like. Benjamin is, is, is being treated as a favor. I, I think part of this is because... Joseph loves Benjamin. But another part of this, I think, is, is he's preparing them, his brothers, for another test. He's being treated as a favorite, just as Joseph was treated as a favorite. So this extra food, this is Benjamin's coat of many colors. This is the thing that's meant to incite the anger and the jealousy of these brothers. He wants to see, will they, will they respond the same way to Benjamin if he's favored as they did to me when I was favored? going to see how they're going to treat Benjamin. The conclusion of the chapter is a scene of joy. It says, and they drank and were merry with him. I assume that means with Joseph. But in chapter 44, Joseph sets his brothers up for the greatest and the most distressing test of their entire lives. It begins as Joseph plants his silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And verse 3 tells us as soon as the morning was light. The men were sent away with their donkeys. Important there, right? Not <laughs> Good to know. But before they get very far from the city, Joseph Stewart overtakes them at Joseph's command, and he asks them the questions that Joseph had instructed. Uh, you see that at the end of verse 4, he was to ask, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. You're wondering about Joseph practicing divination. We'll have to talk about it some other time, but I didn't get into that. So we can talk about it, but just know that I see it, but we're passing over it. But he says, he approaches them and he asks them this question. Now, we know 100% these brothers are innocent, right? I mean, they're not innocent of anything, but they're innocent of this for sure. But we also know that they're going to be found guilty because Joseph has planted this cup. And so they proclaim their innocence. And then you read verse 9, and it is tragic because they say, whichever of your servants is found with the cup, who's that? Benjamin shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. They put themselves in a rough spot. And the steward shows grace and says, let it be as you say. He He who is found with it shall be my servant. And the rest of you shall be innocent. You guys can go. So their bags are searched. They're searched oldest to youngest. And just when they think their honesty is going to be made plain, the steward reaches into Benjamin's bag and pulls out the cup. And their response is in verse 13. It says, Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Now what was the agreement of the steward? It said, whoever is found with the cup would be his servant, and the rest are innocent. So to me, what it seems is that in this moment, the other nine brothers are free to leave. They can go if they want to. They can forsake their brother. Of course, they don't they don't know that this cup was planted. So they're probably thinking, Benjamin, you fool, what were you thinking, man? 
I can't believe he did this. And, and they may be tempted to say, he deserves whatever he's going to get if he made that foolish choice. But maybe, maybe the big dinner did help out. Maybe, uh, maybe they are jealous. Maybe they're going to be happy to see him treated poorly, just as they were happy to get rid of Joseph. I think that's what the men who were in Dothan 20-some years ago would have done. I think they would have rode off, they would have come home, and they would say, listen, Dad, we didn't do anything wrong. It was Benjamin that messed up. But they are no longer the murderous and the jealous and the vindictive and the angry and the immature and the rash guys that they once were. Years and life in general and God's grace especially in the gift of conviction all changed them. What do they do? They're back on their donkeys. They go back to the city. And who are they led by? They're led by Judah. There's an interesting phrase in verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. Isn't that interesting? I, they've never been described that way. It's just the brothers. But how are they described now? Judah and his brothers. Judah rises to the top. And Joseph continues the test. It's Judah who responds on behalf of his brothers. And I want to read this conversation that finishes out the chapter. So this is the largest portion that we'll read. But Genesis 44, verse 16 to the end of the chapter. This is such a poignant conversation. It says, And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we, and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Joseph said, Far be it for me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh, my Lord, Please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, a, younger, a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go if our youngest brother, if our younger brother's brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And your servant, my father, said this, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, I do not bring him back to you, and I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not? I fear to see the evil that would find my home. 
What a speech, no? I mean, just the word, the, the passion of Judah, the love of Judah. Judah is, is the representative of his brothers, and he reveals how time and the conviction of God and God's grace have changed him and changed his brothers. Two key reactions. What were the two tests? Are they honest? And are they compassionate? We see two key reactions. The first is Judah's honesty about his sin. Honesty about sin. You see that right at the very beginning, in verse 16, what shall we say to the Lord? How shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found our condemnation of your servants. They said that last week when they didn't know that Joseph understood them. Remember, they said, we are guilty. But now here, this is, this is bolder. He says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. And they assume that this Egyptian governor, he wants to punish Benjamin for the crime of stealing this cup. But Judah knows that something deeper is going on here. God is doing something. God is going to punish them for their sins. He's revealing the guilt of their past actions. Judah knows that this actually has nothing to do with Benjamin. It has to do with God exposing their hearts and their guilt and calling them to account for these So Judah steps forward. In a sense, he says, listen, you don't really understand what's going on here, but we are the ones who are guilty. And Joseph, Joseph insists, he says, no, I can't, I can't hold captive guys that haven't done anything wrong. I will keep the one who offended and not the rest of them. But Judah persists. He says that they are guilty. And he says it goes all the way to the point of saying that I will bear Benjamin's punishment. It's interesting. I think Judah has been given countless opportunities to escape this, hasn't he? I mean, there are exits at the front and in the middle and at the rear of this plane. And he doesn't go out any of them. He refuses to take those ways out. A sign of clear true repentance is that we don't care who knows what we've done and we don't care about the consequences of our sin. We just want to acknowledge our sin. We want to seek forgiveness and we want to move on in the process of change even if that means we face punishment and consequences for our sins. We're ready to be honest about sin and rid of it. I read this story about a man who had murdered someone and escaped from police and lived for over 20 years just off the grid in the middle of nowhere. And after 20 years, he went to a police station in Texas and turned himself in. They said, we have no record of you. He said, no, I know that I did this. They had to go back because it wasn't electronically kept at that one. They had to go to the archives and find a warrant for this man. But he did it because he finally knew peace in that moment when he confessed his sin, and I think that's what's going on here with you. He is going to be honest before God about his sin. When God brings conviction, the only way we will find joy is when we confess that sin and forsake it. If we refuse, if we go to these doors of escape, we might preserve our life in some way, but we will be left in pain. We see the change because of Judah's honesty about sin, but we also see it in his compassion for others. His compassion for others. Judah is not the man that he was in Dothan. What did he think about Joseph and Dothan? Let's get some money off of this guy, right? Let's sell him. Why should we kill him? Let's make some dough. He's not the guy that he was with Tamar. He's concerned with Tamar. He's concerned simply about his own pleasure. He's fulfilling his own desires 
whatever the consequences, there, there are no consequences that he worries about. But who is he here? He's concerned about his father. He cares deeply for his dad in this moment, doesn't he? He, he doesn't begrudge his father's favoritism. He, he's filled with compassion for his father in his old age and, and who ben, what Benjamin means to his father. You know, they, they never maybe really understood well, I don't think it was right for Jacob to favor Joseph so highly, but, but maybe after all this time, Judah maybe understands how much Rachel really meant to Jacob and how much her son meant. And so now he, he sees that. He has compassion for his dad. He's filled with compassion for Benjamin. He's not jealous of Benjamin. So much so he's, he's willing to lay down his life for these guys. As we grow as followers of Christ, Compassion should be growing more and more in us. We are more and more convicted of our selfishness. We strive more and more to put the needs and the desires of others above our own. And we're even willing to bear the blame for what others have done. I think these guys passed the test. Are they honest? I don't, I'm not saying they're perfect, but it sure seems like that they're being a little bit more honest about what they've gone through. They're confessing their guilt. What's interesting is we'll just have to keep studying this. I don't know that they ever outright come, come out and say, here's what we did and we're sorry for doing They don't really do that, but there's some honesty going on here in their hearts. Are they compassionate? I think they are. They could have gotten away. They could have, they could have saved their own lives and, and forgot about their father and their brother. But they show compassion. You know, in our study in Genesis 2, I think we keep, I've had some conversations with you all. Why Judah? Why, why is, is Judah the brother through whom the promised seed comes? Who makes sense? Joseph. Why doesn't the promised seed come through Joseph? He's the one that's, that's sweet and clean. He's the one that looks most like Jesus, isn't he? I think Joseph is undoubtedly a picture of Christ through this narrative. But isn't Judah a picture of Christ here? Maybe even more so than Joseph? Judah is the one through whom the promised seed will come. He's the one through whom the Savior of the world will be born. His line. Back before they, they came to Egypt this second time, what did Judah say to his brother or to his father? He said, if he didn't bring Benjamin back, he said, I'll bear the burden forever. And now, what's he doing? Out of love for his father, Judah is willing to take on the sins of his brother so that his brother will be spared. Now Judah was guilty. I mean, Judah had done wrong things all his life, and he deserved punishment. He didn't deserve punishment for this. And even knowing his need for punishment, his, his guilt, this act of self-sacrifice is, is remarkable. And it reminds us, it reminds us of the one who is going to come through the line of Judah, doesn't it? Jesus. Jesus is sent by the Father and out of love for the Father and for his Father's children, he takes the sins of his children upon himself. Unlike Judah, Jesus had no sin that he had to bear the punishment for. Jesus was spotless. He had done nothing wrong and he deserved no punishment. But he bore the eternal guilt that, that he bore the blame forever of all his children as he suffered and he died. He took our punishment upon himself. And 
He calls us to be honest about our guilt before Him, to admit our sin. And then He calls us to know the compassion that He has shown us by offering us forgiveness and life through faith in what He's done. And if God has saved us in that way, then for those of us who God grants mercy, just as He granted mercy to Jacob in preserving his sons, just as He granted mercy to, to Joseph's brothers, we are called to be agents of mercy grace and compassion. We're to be the people who lay down our lives, who lay down our supposed rights, whatever those are, who lay down our, our own desires so that we can serve others, just like you did, so that we can spare others from things, so that we can see others saved from eternal wrath. When I make the statement, change is possible, I don't mean that in some sort of like self-help um, you can do it kind of way. That's not what we're talking about here. I mean change is possible because God can and is willing to change us. By God's grace, because of what Jesus has done, change is possible. And it's possible even for dishonest, uncompassionate sinners like you and like me. He changes us. He's in the process of changing us even now. And he makes us into people who stand before the light of his conviction and we welcome him. We say, yes, I know that I'm a sinner. I'm not trying to hide it. We are honest about our sin. He makes us into people that are filled with compassion. And why are we filled with compassion? Because we have been shown so much compassion. We're people who forgive because we have been so forgiven through the grace of Christ. So brothers and sisters, by God's grace and the strength that he provides Let's walk in the light of the truth. And let's love and forgive others just as we have been supremely loved by God and forgiven by Him. And as we do that, let's walk through life remembering that, that no one, including you, including me, including anyone that we come in contact with, no one is a lost cause when God's mercy 